everyone. Welcome back to Central American Voices. This is Susan Garcia. Hola, bienvenidos a Voces Centroamericanas. Mi nombre es Alejandra Quiroz. Le agradecemos por sintonizarnos una vez más. Today we're talking with Gabriela Casco, who's a first-gen Honduran, born and raised in New Jersey. She's currently getting her master's in political science and global policy. She was just a child migration and protection intern for UNICEF USA. So today we're going to talk about a myriad of topics, from being Honduran American to her experience in the advocacy sector and migration policy, and talking about the migration corridor with Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, and the U.S., and probably more. Thank you, Gabby, for being with us today. Hi, Susan. Hi, Alejandra. I'm super excited to be here. And um, just again, to introduce myself, um, my name is Gabriela Casco. Um, I am first-gen Honduran, born and raised in New Jersey. I'm going to school at Rutgers. Um, my concentrations right now are human rights, gender equality, and international law. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about my journey with you all. Thank you. Thank you, Gabriela, for taking your time and being with us today. We really, really appreciate it. And we're happy to have you here. Um, to start, um, how how is your experience as a first generation Central American here in the, in the U.S. and growing up in New Jersey? Um, so basically for me, I was born and raised in Jersey City, New Jersey, and um, I moved around a lot, you know, but I stayed in school in Jersey City. And um, Jersey City is really a very diasporic experience. That's like the best way I can describe it because of the fact that it's a very diverse city. Um, but I still felt like I wasn't necessarily, um, I, I couldn't really identify with the rest of the Latinx community that I grew up around um, because the majority were of Caribbean descent or South American, um, majority like Puerto Rican, Dominican, Colombian, Um, or even Mexican. Um, so my culture, my Honduran culture really stemmed from my family. And um, for me, I would go to Honduras every single year because my dad, um, his whole family is still in Honduras. And um, the majority live in Tela, also in Colón. So um, with that, I would always go over there and I was really exposed to the differences in living and also just kind of like a culture shock either way of when I was in Honduras or when I was back in Jersey. Um, so for me, it was kind of like, I feel like a lot of people say this, if they're first gen and they're um, born in the U.S., they kind of feel like they're not um, Honduran enough or they're not American enough. So they're kind of in that in between. Um, so for me, I battled without, with that throughout um, my, my years growing up, my childhood, high school, even in college, but it was really in college. And even after I graduated, that I kind of realized that my identity was, I felt more seen in that sense. Um, even with on, on Twitter too, um, being involved in, in just having discourse, talking about different things that are happening in Honduras and how that has to do in the U S. So that's kind of been my experience. Um, I still, again, I still felt far removed in just my identity as a Honduran for a while um, because I didn't really have a lot of friends that I that were Honduran or even Central American. Um, but I kind of found the, I guess, embrace that um, because at the end of the day, I still have a lot of pride and being Honduran. And that's kind of what stemmed into why I chose to look more into like migration policy, I global think policy that, um, and, um, to, and you politics know, like in general. People like first generation and even people that migrate here. I think that identity is very, um, gets very, I'm not saying like uh, confused when it's like when you're in high school or like when you live in other um, cities where, you know, 
your the only thing close to your identity is your household and i think we have talked with susie before how you know like you know her having a different um experience like mine when i migrated in and she being first generation here how honestly we find our identity or more connected to our identity is when we get to college um how like you said how you find like a, a more mm -hmm. open space to open conversation and twitter and i think that central american twitter sent you know all those twitter mm -hmm. i'm not a twitter girl but you know <laughs> uh sometimes i go there but yeah i it's, it's very useful <laughs> because i feel like for everything dabbles yeah <laughs> yes you know sometimes when you, when you don't when you actually want to talk <laughs> with your parents sometimes your parents like Like, for example, like my family, sometimes like she, ha they have their own point of view and I have my own point of view. And to have that conversation sometimes can be hard. And sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like when I go on, on Twitter or do I go like on Instagram or I read like Facebook, Facebook, I, I was able to find that community where, you know, not only have the same point of views, but I even if they have like the same point of view on my parents, it's more easier for me to have that conversation that later can translate to my parents. You know what I mean? So I think that is mm -hmm. like, like you said, you know, like, uh, um, exactly. I mean, we have talked here, yeah. we have, we have emphasized it all the time, how identity is important. And, you know, how you said that was who make you go into the advocacy sector. And I think it's, it's, it's true, you know, like, Sometimes, even though when you grew up with other Latinx uh, communities, sometimes, even though like many people said like, oh, you look the same or, you know, you're all the same. But sometimes you just feel disconnected from them. Yeah, no, I like Gabby, when, you know, I liked how you described your so you're in Jersey City, which I mean, New Jersey is not far away from New York City. So I I related a lot mm -hmm. to what you called, you know, a diasporic um experience and i think i'm good that's something i'm going to start using for my own experience because i grew up in a similar situation <laughs> where um i live in jamaica queens where it's like here we have kind of like three main you know immigrant communities here you know like one is like caribbean mm -hmm. the other one is the bangladeshi one and then the third one is the latinx one which is mostly central american here you know so it's like I didn't you know, for the first couple of years because I was in ESL, like everyone was Central American around me. But then, you know, just in public school, mm -hmm. it's like there's like a community based on around like our common, you know, we're all either first generation or migrated here. Um, but it's, you know, it's different cultures, but there mm -hmm. is that like, you know, understanding of like, you know, we're, we're operating outside of we can't relate to things we're seeing on TV, basically. Um But at the same time, yeah, like, yeah, especially like as I grew up, you know, like a lot of the Central Americanness came from like either my church, because um, a lot of it coincided with the people like my classmates. They went to the same church that I did. Uh, my family, because I have a lot of extended mm -hmm. family that moved here. But then just like uh, for me, part of like my story is that like after seventh grade, I was put into a private school on scholarship where like no one was Central American. And so that obviously... Mm -hmm informs that yeah. but um for me because of this it also ended up that like you know i started getting this awareness tour in college because for me i started to try first collect to like mm -hmm. latinidad 
um, at the end of high school, beginning of college, mm-hmm. like that was like mm-hmm. okay because you never like hear about being people being like I'm proud to be like Guatemalan. Like you would hear about people mm-hmm. proud to be Mexican or proud mm-hmm. to be Argentinian or Colombian. You know, like for me, it was like why would I like yep. why would I be repping my Central American? So for me, it was like oh like Latinidad. Like that's what's that's my thing. Um, but that obviously like I think exactly. we all know that like it just there's problems with that so just in college like I tried looking more for like the Central American side of things the internet really has been like a huge catalyst of that um and Central American Twitter like oh my like I've learned so much from that uh and it's really like Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that I found Twitter as a space to be able to like develop my opinions and hear other experiences because it wasn't really until like I interacted with other Central Americans like that's our age and up that I like realized, you know, how, like, mm-hmm. for example, how diverse, like the Central American experience to begin with, because I've heard of, uh, for mm-hmm. example, in the DMV, like where everyone's Central American, you know, like, it's just like, that's just like the mm-hmm. norm. That's the baseline. And it's like trying to imagine that is just so like, so it must be such a unique experience. And so I'm like, wow, like, I wish I had that, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but we did it. And I think that like definitely kind of, I mean, it, it, because yeah. of, we didn't feel that connection growing up is, be- I think, why, like, we then want to kind of grasp onto it even more strongly. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I can relate strongly to um, being in private school as well, because of the fact that I went to private school my whole life, but it was really apparent how, um, I guess, the fact that I felt even more, it wasn't as inclusive, I should say, in, in high school mm-hmm. because I went to all girls high school in Jersey City, mm-hmm. but the majority um, was much more white than anything else, including the, the teachers. Um, so mm-hmm. I that was another thing where I felt very close-minded in a sense because there wasn't a lot of space to really talk about things or even to talk about your identity in general. So I think that's, it's a really good point to bring up because of what you mentioned with like the DMV and that how over there, everyone is Central American. But then when you come to like more of the East Coast, the majority is like Caribbean or other um, identities of that manner. And you kind of just assimilate to everyone around you. So whatever it is that they like to do, what kind of music they listen to. But so for us, it's more about assimilation rather than us understanding who we are as Central American people, which is totally fine, too, I feel. But it also is something important to know once we want to understand ourselves and our journeys as people that are from migrant families, because once we lose sight of like who we are and where we come from, then that's when it comes into us not really knowing our history and and the things that um are much more problematic and and trying to um, fix that in terms of like generational trauma or anti-blackness within our communities. You know, Mm -hmm. those are huge topics that like we have to embrace and also tackle because if not, and if we are constantly Mm -hmm. are people that are like, yeah, like it is what it is. That's our, who we are, whatever. Then that's when it becomes even more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so Definitely. you know, all this kind I, of I coincides to add, with one another, and it's just so important. It, uh, right now, you're talking about identity, how everything gets together. You know, I, when I was living back in Honduras, um, I was, you know, like mm-hmm. 
I was there for 14 years, right? So I moved here when I was 14. I never questioned my identity, you know? Like, I, for me, like, it's funny, it's, it's funny because I have talked this with my mom, how, like, I was like, I didn't know what it is, you know, like, oh, Latino, because over there I was just, you know, like, that, that was it, that was it, right? I never mm-hmm. questioned that. Like, I, I, I know yeah. from where, like, my family is from, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. it. But when I come here, I it, it was like like you say, you know, like you come to in a <clears throat> in this place where it's full of diversity, and then now it's like oh, like okay, so how I do I identify? You know, like I know I'm Honduran, but it's like okay, like if I if I it like most of mm-hmm. you know here in California, the majority of the immigrant group is like Mexican, and then if I go with the you know Mexican people, like they're like oh no, you're different. If I go to like someone mm-hmm. alone, no, you're different. You know what I mean? So like. I feel like it's very, for me, it's very interest, interesting every time, like, mm-hmm. I hear, like, Susan or, like, you know, you, how your experience was as a first generation because it's, like, now with all the, this diaspora, we have all this French generation growing up in a place where, you know, where the culture is mainly, like you said, at home, but then you experience all this diversity. That at the end, it adds up to our identity, but mm-hmm. you always try to be connected to you to to your home of course like you like you like you said like you visit most of the time Honduras mm-hmm. exactly. which is sometimes it's not the reality for many others so like how they experience their identity how they navigate the system through like how they find themselves is is different and I think it's always very amazing how it let's say like for example mixed uh, uh, children's like they have two uh, two parents from different countries i think that it's it's a matter of how they encounter how they get to discover their identity and how that works with everything because everything is so related exactly exactly and it's just so important to touch on the topics because especially as like um within the latinx community our whole identity in itself is yeah it is basically uh, a result of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? So, like, exactly, we we really don't know what exactly we are. <laughs> to put it simple, you know. So it's like, it, and then when you add into migration, and then you add into a bunch of things that are around you, and how you navigate yourself, it, it becomes so complex. But it is super important, and it is interesting because it, it makes it that more much more unique per person, you know. Mm-hmm. So, Gabby, like you mentioned, how you know a lot of your experiences have. I mean, inform, you know, your process of development and how, and what you want to do growing up. So can you talk about more how your experience has inspired you, but also informed your work in the advocacy sen- sector? For me, um, what inspired me um, to kind of look more into the advocacy sector was because of the fact that um, both my parents are from Honduras, but my mom migrated when she was very young and my dad. Um, he came when he was in his mid-20s already, so their experiences were very different. And also, um, my dad's whole family is still in Honduras, so I would visit every single year. And um, one big thing that my dad had always um, put in my head was kind of that you always have to give back and always you can't forget mm-hmm. where you come from. So whenever we would go to Honduras, one of the main things we would do was um, always send a box over with like different medicines toiletries, um, toys, a bunch of things. And then we would go to um, my dad's neighborhood and we would give it to different families that um, needed like 
uh, basic mm-hmm. necessities and things of that sort. And it was more of just to make sure that we can always provide for our community and not to just leave and kind of leave everyone else to figure mm-hmm. things out on their own when you have the resources to help them. So that was something that I grew up with. And because of that, I went into Rutgers as, during my undergrad and I kind of didn't really know what I'd wanted <laughs> to do. I feel like I still don't, but mm-hmm. I have a good idea of what I'm passionate about. <laughs> so that's why um, I went and I started studying women and gender studies. And then I realized that I was very interested in Latin American mm-hmm. studies, but I still focus more on like human rights related things, which is why um, when I graduated, I was trying to figure out, okay, what can I do that will be something that I'm passionate about, but I can also have a career in and, you know, work my way up. And when I was thinking about it, it was also obviously where we're, the political climate that we're in in the United States is is very problematic. And, you know, and seeing how like migration policy has been changing almost every single day, basically. And I started to be more affected at that. And also like the xenophobic rhetoric, the anti-Blackness, the post-colonial generational trauma that I started reading more and more about on my own and talking to people that have these positions that are either in a political sector, advocacy sector. That's kind of what made me realize I want to go into this route. So then I found the the graduate program that I'm in right now that focuses on global policy and United Nations studies, um, things of that sort. So that's why I I started finding my niche. It took a really mm-hmm. long time, you know, because things like this, you aren't really taught about. And again, going yeah. back to yep. being first gen, mm-hmm. you're kind of taught, oh, you either have to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant mm-hmm. or something that, you know, something that mm-hmm. everyone knows about that can make good money. Right. right. So, and I just kind of never really knew where I wanted to go because none of that fit me, you know? So it took me a really long time and it's up until now that I've realized literally this year that I was like, advocacy is something that I really see myself in, especially seeing Mm -hmm. how organizers work and what they stand for morally and just their drive is something that I'm very... I'm very interested in, and I want to be in those spaces with them. And Gabby, how do you, because I know that I, I feel like I relate a lot to what you are talking about, because I just know that in the past several years, I just graduated and trying to figure out my life. But, you know, in the Mm -hmm. past four years, like I've been very, again, like very kind of UN, nonprofit, like advocacy oriented. Um, and like over the years that has shifted, but mm-hmm. it's been like very much focused, you know, basically, you know, like the non-profit sector, advocacy sector. And I've been very focused as well in migration mm-hmm. and global policy as well. Um, and mm-hmm. I've heard like, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. critiques as to like, I mean, I think generally, right. Like what's the best way like to make, like to change things for the better. What do you think so far of that? Like how has your experience been? Yeah. So with that, I've definitely realized um, that larger international development organizations, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. they have the capacity to put forth really Mm -hmm. good programs. 
for example, like child protection programs in Central America and the U.S., they have a lot of money. You know, they get a lot of donations from big corporations, from philanthropists and everything. But when it comes to the more personal on the ground Mm -hmm. work, that's when things get hazy. And that's something that I'm starting to realize now, because obviously, like, if you go into a smaller organization to work with them, you have more, um, you have the capacity mm-hmm. to really put your 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 voice in mm-hmm. and your insight in mm-hmm. and what you would want to see happen. But in a larger sector, um, you know, for example, like, you know, at the UN, every, we all know what the UN is. Um, the majority of us know what the UN is and the, their capacity to make really good um, programs to advocate for people that are going through conflict or women um, that are experiencing violence and things of that sort. But, you know, a lot of these people mm-hmm. had never experienced mm-hmm. it firsthand or they aren't necessarily looking in the the intersectional right. aspects right. of these issues. So there's a there's like a very big disconnect. And I started to notice that throughout my time of just being in my program, because, you know, everywhere you go, especially in academia, it can be very problematic, especially if people are mm-hmm. teaching you. Um, so I've realized that I, from my experience, I went into understanding like what it is to be in a smaller sector as well as a bigger sector mm-hmm. with a bigger name. And it really is about providing the space for yourself. And I've realized that we have to like right now, we're mm-hmm. having these conversations, right? And we're trying to teach each other what is a better route mm-hmm. and what isn't. Mm-hmm. We don't, and like, we're the ones that have to pave mm-hmm. that space. And I still think that we can be involved in larger international developments, but we, we have to be very cognizant of the spaces that we're in because it's still like a corporate setting, but it's like, you're you're doing something that is for people that mm-hmm. need help you know so it's still corporate they're still going to be doing things to help them move mm-hmm. up and it's a reality that I came to terms with and not say I you know for me personally I haven't experienced anything negative but when you go into those spaces you can see how much it, it is that way people are just trying to get one job done sometimes they don't really mm-hmm. look at the bigger picture and it's because, you know, they're immersed in, in a space that they're only given certain yeah. types of tools. But then when you're going into, you know, when you're going in a, a smaller organization, you have much more room to really go about the way right. that you want to without a lot of um, backlash or being like bipartisan or, or you know, politics mm-hmm. are involved because you have a stance and then you can go forth with it. But then when you're in a bigger organization, you have a lot of things you right. have to watch for. So whether it be you can't like, you know, you can't fully bash the the current administration mm-hmm. because that you just simply can't do that mm. in a bigger organization because you need money from right. certain people, you know, mm. stuff like that. And, you know, I'm putting that into into very simple terms because it, it is much more right. complex than that. You know, like these organizations they do put forth programs that definitely do help children. Um, you know, whether it be in Central America or, you know, across the globe, but it, it is a mm-hmm. reality of it. And the reality of it is, is that larger organizations will tend to work with other organizations that may be right. problematic. And how is that for you? Mm-hmm. 
for me, mm-hmm. it's very hard. I, I feel like um, I always want, I always go into things with like my moral compass, I guess. I, I really mm-hmm. don't know how else to explain it um, because of the fact that I want to go into a space. I want to be able to provide resources mm-hmm. and be, and provide a space just right. for everyone else. And um, it's kind of hard to do that when there's these organizations that mm-hmm. like were fun that they started right. in like, the 40s you know there's a, there's a lot of things that are going to be problematic and it's like I from what I've seen it's kind of like okay you either accept it or you just right. go into something else and I don't feel I don't really think that that's a, a good mm-hmm. way of seeing it because the only reason why it hasn't changed is because people like us aren't in those spaces mm-hmm. right so for me it's kind of I want to continue on being in these spaces. I want to continue on asking hard questions because no right. one else is going to yeah. do it. You know, at the end of the day, you have to be, you have to be intentional with what you want to do. And once you are in those spaces, you can be an advocate mm-hmm. in even the smallest ways you right. can still be an advocate. And that's how I mm-hmm. did it as. So, um, I just, I, I again it's still I very imagine. hard it, you go into you know so it's like there's always going to be different things that are going to be problematic others that are not but with your intention and how mm-hmm. much you feel like you want to be mm-hmm. immersed in them that is you know it's, it's per person and for me I'm start I'm still going through that journey of being like okay I didn't really like this experience mm-hmm. maybe I'll okay. go this route so that's where I'm going yeah. right no, now. This is just helpful mm-hmm. for me because, again, I'm trying to figure out my life. And I know that for a lot of us, like, where a lot yeah. of us are just naturally drawn, you know, like, to, like, migration issues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, And, like, for me, you know, like, mm-hmm. growing up, I mean, again, past four years, like, thinking about, like, oh, like, it makes sense for me to go into migration because I have, like, a personal tie, you know, my a personal tie to it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I understand I have like a unique aspect to it that like most of these people who mm-hmm. are dictating migration policy like have never even been close or like don't have like a friend or a family yeah. member you know like they're just not even attached to it yeah. and like why wouldn't it be like the best people who like have some type of experience with it or some firsthand knowledge about it um and but it seems mm-hmm. like you know like as you've said like if you go into these spaces like there's I mean I understand that like from us and unfortunately that's how these organizations work that like I'm going to have to put in like extra emotional effort, you know, to be like, check them. And like, given that other perspective of like, actually like people, like people who migrated, like think about this, they're not thinking about that. Um, But like strength to you, I I can't imagine that's like, it's hard. And I know they're most likely requiring more emotional labor from you than they are of other people. Um, But no, I, I understand that. Um, and I think it's helpful for, it's helpful for me, but also again to a lot of people who may be listening to this, who are thinking about the same things. And I think it's good to have an idea of like where mm-hmm. you're going, like what you're going to face. Cause I can imagine like, it may be like mm-hmm. disorienting or I don't know, like the verb for this, like it may disillusion you because you're just like, wait, like, you know, all the yeah. bureaucracy or as you said, the politics or like the hierarchy, et cetera, et cetera. The institu- institutions themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, but thank you for this. Exactly. And, I, know, I mean, I've been wondering about them for so long. Sorry, mm-hmm. go on. 
Oh, yeah, no. And, and you know, I'm glad that you asked that because mm-hmm. even just apart from that, imposter syndrome is mm. just a huge thing. And especially I feel like in this sector, because for my experience, it's kind of like, OK, yeah, I was born here. So I don't have mm-hmm. a front lines, front lines experience of migration, but my entire family has. So it's like, am I really someone that should be talking about this? But it's kind of like, yeah, I should because I have the space Mm -hmm. to do it. And like, I can help others be in this space too, you know? So it's kind of, it's that push and pull type of thing. But it, you know, imposter syndrome is real. Everyone's feelings are valid that want to go into this space. And that's why we have to come together and really be resources for one another. Like, you know, special shout out right now to uh, Jenny Garcia. She was someone that even helped me get my internship. You know, mm. she's Honduran too. She's a year older than me, graduated my program. And we kind of clicked and we've just been helping each other out. And, you know, because we both want to be in the sector and things like that is like very, very important. And I've realized that before, because obviously mm-hmm. people that grow, grow up in a, a certain mm-hmm. privilege, you know, People that have generations that are that live here, they have a right. lot of things mm-hmm. set out for them. Now, like, unfortunately, the majority of us don't. But we also, right now, we're in a space that we can be those resources from one another. So, you know, that's that's a really important thing. Definitely with everything that you said. Um, thank you. First, uh, I want to thank you and to everyone who go to the sectors because, as you said, you know, we need more people that actually understand migration, that actually understand, like, violence to women, that actually understand what is actually happening and in all these spaces because when you don't have someone that at least, let's say, like, if the person didn't go through that but at least understand it, Instead of just going, being there for X, Y reason, I think that it's very important to have people like you and like you said, your friend Jenny Garcia to be able to, you know, confront and to ask those questions. Um, As we were mentioning about the, you know, migration mainly, um, which is one, I I do believe that is one of the topics that sometimes can be very not not touchy, but very like hard to talk when when we are in in, in other spaces, just because everyone has uh, an opinion on migration. Uh, when we have seen for the past years how we had had um, migrants Karen mainly from Central America, uh, and how migration is always one of the main topics. Let's say, for example, in exactly in this um, time where is an election. It's an election year. How migration is always the point. Like it's one of those top uh, topics. And um, so, how how has migration policy throughout the year has made it harder for people to apply for me? You know, apply for let's say visa, refugees, or even to migrate to um, this um, because we're talking because of the United States um, to the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, migration policy, you know, is extremely complex. And like I had mentioned earlier, there's so many different bills that are being introduced mm. months at a time. And it's kind of hard to keep up. But um, it's something that is super important. Mm-hmm. And especially right now during the current um, global health crisis that we're in, it's kind of taken a huge leap into the different changes that the U.S. has been doing. And um, before, like I even go into policy, I really wanted to just 
talk about the key differences mm-hmm. between the the words migrant, asylum mm-hmm. seeker, refugee, because, you know, they're often conflated mm-hmm. or confused. And a lot of the times they mean different things. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, a migrant is a person who leaves their country of origin domestically mm-hmm. or internationally. So, you know, Alejandra, you know, you're a migrant, you know, my parents were migrants, you know, people that leave, even somebody that leaves from California to New York is a migrant, you know, so that is something um, that is, that should be um, known, you know, because Mm -hmm. sometimes people confuse like a refugee from a migrant, Mm -hmm. and they're very different things. Mm -hmm. And um, especially for migrant, there's no legal definition for migrant, which is why there's a lot of confusion with the terminology. And um, an asylum seeker is a person that's seeking international protection, but the mm-hmm. request to actually gain asylum is still being processed. So an asylum seeker has to be mm-hmm. in the port of entry. So that being the United States border and mm-hmm. um, they have to seek asylum or start their application that way. Um, you know, the there's a certain process that goes into seeking asylum and it's called the um, affer- affirmative asylum process. So that includes like th- that includes seven steps, which is one, you have to ri- arrive at the U.S. Two, apply for asylum. Three is fingerprinting and background checks. Um, four is you do an interview or you receive an interview notice. The fifth one is you actually go through with the interview. And six is eligibility is determined. And then finally, a decision is received. And um, once, say, hypothetically speaking, an asylum seeker gains Mm -hmm. asylum, then that's when they are noted as a refugee. So refugee status is when you are able to stay in the United States and have certain um, benefits to protect you. And a refugee is a person who has fled their country or um, habitual residence due to circumstances of conflict war, extreme poverty, or fear of persecution. Um, So those are very important things to note, um, you know, because of the fact that Mm -hmm. a refugee is already a person that is receiving these benefits. And an asylum seeker is someone that is still waiting for the application to be Mm -hmm. viewed and to be considered eligible or non-eligible. And, um, you know, like in terms of policy, there has been a lot of different policies that has been going on that has affected migrants very, very deeply. Um, for example, um, there's the zero tolerance policy um, has been one of the biggest concerns with immigration policy because of the family mm-hmm. separations. So basically, it's a way of cracking down on the quote unquote immigration issue that's in the United States. This was Um, put out in 2018 obviously it's still been going on and basically what happens is that when people when they find undocumented immigrants um, even if they rightfully present themselves at the border um, they are separated from their families and they are treated um, in a criminal manner which is why they're detained separately and um, obviously this causes Mm -hmm. like great trauma from child migrants, um, mm-hmm. especially because usually families and children, they they have no means of communication throughout the time they're detained. And mm-hmm. there is no way of them knowing when they're going to be reunited with their families. So this is like a huge thing that's been going on. And on top of that, there's um, 
a certain policy called the third country transit ban, which is basically something that the United States wanted to do by people that wanted to come into the States that wanted to seek asylum. They first have to seek asylum, whether it be in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador first. And once they seek asylum there, then they can go to the United States and, and try to go and seek asylum in the United States, which is mm-hmm. problematic, extremely Definitely. problematic because, you know, the, the, the United States is trying to deem or the Department of Homeland Security, I should say, is deeming that these countries in Central America are just as safe as, as going to the U.S. And also it poses much more harm into the Mm -hmm. asylum seekers because it it takes much longer for them to seek protection, you know? So it's something that is also a big issue. Mind you, this is something that has been going on before Mm -hmm. the pandemic, right? So then now during the pandemic, the um, Trump administration has issued over 40 policy changes since March. So that, yeah. so, So, yeah. So because of that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that's directly affecting them. It is, you know, but there there's so many changes that is just the entire immigration system in general is being affected. And it's being and obviously mm-hmm. the reason why they're doing it is because of, of the global health crisis. But it's it's in a way that is weaponizing COVID-19 mm-hmm. to take away the basic human rights of asylum seekers, refugees, migrants. Right. So at the end of the day according to to international law an asylum seeker can go and seek asylum in 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 the United States it shouldn't be taken away right so i'm saying this because of the fact that one of the main things that has been going on is that in march mid march uh the department of homeland security issued um one of their first statements basically saying that asylum seekers that are coming in um they won't be able to get their application processed. And a lot of them were getting detained Mm -hmm. and deported back to their home country without due process, which is very, very, very problematic and very dangerous for these people because they are obviously Mm -hmm. fleeing in fear of persecution and that's being completely disregarded, right? So it's, it's something that is very scary and continues to happen. And because of what is happening, that is like also affecting unaccompanied mm-hmm. children because they are also being returned to their homes, regardless of their their fear of persecution. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know what exactly is going mm-hmm. on with their lives. So even like according to UNICEF, um, more than a thousand unaccompanied migrant children have been turned away at the border. And um, that's been since early March. So obviously these numbers are still rising. Wow. Um, and also there's, yeah, so there's been a lot of restrictions also in placing unaccompanied children um, in in mm-hmm. different detention centers, which, yes, like, if you read it, it says that it's that they're moving them so they don't have a risk of, of contracting COVID-19. But that means that mm-hmm. there's less spaces for them to be mm-hmm. detained in. So then that also causes mm-hmm. more threat of them detaining anyway, because they're going to be in, in spaces like that. And also, if you saw um, a few weeks ago, they were finding migrant mm-hmm. children in hotels from privately owned um, detention centers as well, 
which is also something that is very problematic because we don't know if these children are getting getting all the mm-hmm. resources that they need. There isn't proper regulation right. there, you know, so it's it's been a lot of issues that is affecting these children, <laughs> these children greatly and is a very traumatic exper- experience mm-hmm. for them. So, um, you right. know, since obviously, like I said, migration policy in general, even before COVID-19 and after COVID-19 is a very big issue that continues mm-hmm. on happening. And unfortunately, what happens with policy is something that is much deeper than than just discussing it, because obviously it's happening mm-hmm. as we're talking about it, right? So it, it's it's very hard to even pinpoint what exactly is happening because policy changes every day. And um, but two other things that just briefly that have been going on since COVID-19 um, started, or at least when the United States was putting in different mm-hmm. policies to combat it, is um, the unaccompanied. And I'm reading it out. Right. It's the unaccompanied alien children mm-hmm. placement restrictions. So that's what I was talking about, about um resettling the the migrant children that are being Mm -hmm. um, detained um, that has been going on as of March 26th. And then also um, migrant protection protocol hearings. They're also, they have been postponed, um, which is also something very problematic and Mm -hmm. that has been postponed indefinitely. So as of July, that has Mm -hmm. been still going on. So a lot of these policies are really putting to halt people's, um, their processes into staying in the United States and um, mm-hmm. and even them going back to, to their home country because also they're going back with, um, sometimes they're going back with COVID-19 and because of the fact that they didn't receive the proper resources in the detention centers. So it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it intersects and it is very, very concerning. And it's just something that um, unless elected officials or even more right now the fact that there's a lot of organizations um talking about this which is super important and they're the most needed right now um it's just something that will continue on happening especially throughout um as the elections come closer you know so it's just something that we Mm -hmm. have to keep talking about obviously everything that i'm mentioning right now is just a a speck of what exactly has been going on and i'm still learning too so it's it's very very complicated, and um, you know all we can do right now is just to talk about it. A very um, important website that I always look at that always talks about very mm-hmm. um, the the up to date policies and what's been putting forth is um, National Immigration Forum. It's so so good, mm. um, and that's something that I've been keeping up to date with in terms of everything that's been going on. Because you. you know you can you can get lost in it. I do all the time. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah well thank you for like walking us through that because I know like I've been getting a sense from like social media accounts especially that like are more centered in migration and I think like one of some of your posts have like you know Mm -hmm. kept me like informed as much as I can um because I know that like people especially migration um advocates have been saying like hey there's been a lot going on you know like during this pandemic uh-huh. with migration uh-huh. but it's just like obviously it gets like lost and i think and it obviously it's done intentionally because i mean they're taking advantage of the fact that there's a pandemic going on like people and there's like you know now with like black lives uh-huh. matter like it's just very hard to keep track of like every single 
injustice. Um, but you know, like explaining this has been helpful. I think like for a lot of us, um, there's a point I wanted to say, and right now I'm forgetting it. So give me like 10 <laughs> seconds totally to remember fine. what that point That's was. totally fine. You know, um, and, and honestly, like even me describing this to you all, um, again, I'm, I'm a grad student. I'm still learning. You know, there's a lot of things that is very hard to understand. And there's a lot of things that can get confusing. Mm-hmm. Even just me learning about all this is it can be daunting. Well, it is daunting at the end of the day. So it's understandable that many of us have a hard time really keeping up to date because it is just so much jargon and so much info out there. And that's why I think Mm -hmm. having discussions like these is so important because at least like throughout my time, throughout this moment right now of me bringing up certain policies, then hopefully everyone that's listening can think of one or they hold on to one specific one and then they read about it and then they Mm -hmm. go into a rabbit hole of you know more things that have been going on so you know it's at the end of the day we're all learning you know I'm definitely not an expert you know but it's something that has been a part of my um academic and and career journey right now Mm -hmm. I remembered what I was gonna say so yeah, like a lot of these things have been happening in the background and we've seen that act, some of them have gotten like a lot of attention, but mm-hmm. I, those tend to be, I guess, policies that affect, you know, the more privileged people within the immigration system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, when talking about um, DACA, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, of course, like, I'm not like negating that experience, but like, I think there's a lot of discussion that, you know, DACA people like, feed into the whole like model minority like benefits off of that you know like oh like it's fine these are like good immigrants like etc etc um when DACA like all of these DACA I feel like that gets a lot of attention Mm -hmm. but also the thing with international students like we saw that cause a huge uproar yeah um and a lot of people and like I pointed out was just like you know ICE and like DHS has been acting like this way towards so many people for years but we care about when it comes to international students but we don't see this energy when again like mm-hmm. these pol- as you said like there's been like 40 policies happening all over march like why was no one saying anything about exactly. that exactly um and so i think you know especially this is important because you know i think people kind of like we're like all right like let international students stay they stayed and then like no one really cared after afterwards when again like these are the people who are like the most privileged within that system Mm -hmm. you know of course like that has some nuance but like overall like it's like when we're talking about asylum seekers you know like people migrating to like during a pandemic Mm -hmm. 11 million undocumented people like in the united states but people without DACA, you know like people aren't talking about that and so exactly i feel like that like you shining a spotlight makes it even more important because no one's talking about like as much you know about the people in detention centers with covid or people who are just being like there's deportations happening in Guatemala. Like there was a stat how like a quarter of like, this was back then because Guatemala's like COVID cases have like been going out of control. But back then when it was, you know, more under control, it was like 25% of COVID cases came from people that were deported from the U S because they, I mean, everyone was saying how like the U S is essentially deporting COVID to other countries that don't have the capacity. Exactly. And you know, and, and that goes back into the, the different the way that the spaces work in detention centers right so it's like there's a lack of resources 
There's a lack of, um, there's a language barrier too, because, you know, when we think of migrants, we think Mm -hmm. of people, yes, they're coming from Central America. A lot of them are also coming from Haiti. And also a lot of them are indigenous that speak their own indigenous language. And there's a language barrier with that as well. So, and even Mm -hmm. with just um, talking about, you know, I, there was these two particular um, deaths that kind of came into light um, in 2018, and they were both child migrants, and they were mm-hmm. indigenous um, child migrants, and they were, right. you know, right. they were both um, from Guatemala yeah. too, you know. And this was something that I actually um, was listening on because I, I joined a a, mm-hmm. a webinar that was talking. Unfortunately, it was talking about um, migrant deaths, and it focused mm-hmm. on those two children and. It, it was kind mm-hmm. of crazy to me because it's kind of like, yeah, I remember that, especially with um, mm-hmm. uh, Jacqueline. And so the names are Jacqueline, um, yeah. Jacqueline and Felipe mm-hmm. Gomez Alonso. And they both, they they received some type of, um, I guess they, they went viral for a little bit. But mm-hmm. Then it was, that was it. But those two right. children are key stories of how things kind of get swept under the rug or the 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 ways mm-hmm. in which their experiences become so mm-hmm. dangerous because of the fact that they went to the states they were sick and they died in custody mm-hmm. you know there was a lot of right. ways that that could have been prevented mm-hmm. and unfortunately the way that the system is put in place in the detention the detention centers it's not really about you know, this is, again, this is my mm-hmm. own opinion, right? Because I, I'm not speaking on any um, organization or whatever, but it seems as though these spaces have the capacity mm-hmm. to give resources to these children, have the capacity to yes. have translators of indigenous languages, you know, but they simply are not mm-hmm. doing it, you know? So it's it's very yeah. scary to see this because this won't be mm-hmm. the only time that happens. And it's true. Right. And it's also sensationalized. And a lot of the times, the more privileged folk that are in with that, that fall within the migration population, yes, they are getting help and I'm glad, but I always think back to, to Jacqueline and Felipe because they were people Mm -hmm. that would have never even been Mm -hmm. advocated for if it didn't go viral, you know, but just for them, just for them, not the entire indigenous community or even the, the, mm-hmm. the black community that are migrants, you know, because they face a whole different experience mm-hmm. that yeah. is very, very dangerous in itself, you know, that doesn't get that doesn't get shed. The light isn't shed on them. So it's it's very right. migration in itself is so many different layers. And it, and I'm glad that you said that, too, because it's true. We, we definitely talk about mm-hmm. the different successes, which is great, but that's just like the basis of it. It's not talking about the people that are mm-hmm. currently in detention centers, you know? So it's, it's very, um, very complicated, but that goes into where we ourselves can put forth mm-hmm. different awareness and, and have these conversations, mm-hmm. you know, because even with people c- creating content and, and even this podcast, it's, it's so important um, because of the fact that all we see right now are are things that mm-hmm. are on the news, right? And that's that's yeah. just the basis of it. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, talking about again, like I think it's become like clear. Um, especially to like listeners who aren't as familiar, but like migration, as you said, it's very layered. Um, it's an extremely diverse topic. People have different access and limitations depending on 
your identity and just where mm-hmm. you are. Um, you know, of course, like you already like pointed to like as awareness as being something really important, you know, towards this, you know, towards trying to affect change, you know, like per se. Um, but do you have like any other, and you already mentioned like the website, but like any other resources or ways that people can, you know, get more educated, spread awareness or trying to, um, Mm -hmm. you know, do something about it. Yeah, definitely. I, I, for me, I love going on social media and following different organizations. So I always like to tell people to make sure that they follow different organizations. And again, shout out to Jenny Garcia, because she gave me a good list that I can provide for y'all. I can also send it to y'all. I don't know if you want to put it in your newsletter, but um, there's different ones such as Border Kindness, um, Angry Diaz. Mm. Um, uh, there's one called Haitian Women for mm. Haitian Refugees, um, mm. Detention Resistance, and the Sidewalk School. Um, those are all um, social media handles that you can find on Instagram. And they provide a lot of good resources. And that's where you can go again into a rabbit hole of just reading on your own and trying to mm-hmm. see what other people are doing. And even just with um, the mm-hmm. Women's Refugee Coalition, they have different programs as well that you can at least interact with or donate in. But for me, especially in the spaces we're in, I really feel that the best way that we can be a part of this um resistance and also just the conversation and discourse is to provide the knowledge that we have right so in just having Mm -hmm. these conversations finding out about different policy and if it strikes you then you could talk to other people podcasts are super important obviously this one and also the um immigration uh national Mm -hmm. forum they have their own podcast Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. that talks about different policies that are going on I found that very important and Mm -hmm. and super helpful. Um, And even contacting your Mm -hmm. elected officials. I realized this when I was interning for UNICEF that um, they focus on activations where they write out um, responses that have been going on, particularly policies that affect children. And you can directly Mm -hmm. email that statement to your um, elected officials of where you live. So yeah. So if you go on UNICEF or UNICEF USA, you can see a bunch of different activations, Mm -hmm. what it says. And at the bottom, it says contact your elected official and you can go from there and you can send Mm -hmm. it to them or even share it on Twitter. That's a great way of just um, doing some type of initiative and actually contacting your, Mm -hmm. your officials. So UNICEF does a great job of doing that. Um, You know, I'm sure that there are so many other activations too that have that same, um, that, that same concept Mm -hmm. and intention. And I would definitely go for those as well. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you so much. Like, I honestly feel like, like I was back in school. Like I was just taking notes everywhere. I was just like, okay. I was like, okay, but she said this. (laughs) Because it's very important. Like, I feel like, you know, like, just like Susie said, sometimes we, shine the light to some important you know everything is important but we shine the bright uh, the light to some group but we forget about others so i was just like writing everything and trying to hear everything and like trying well i mean i i do take notes for it but uh when when you mentioned about how 40 policy have have been changing in this past month i was like in shock because it's like yeah yeah I, like uh, you know the 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 
Yeah. We don't know how many policies have sitting. We only see like, oh, like, you know, just like Susie said, that one for international students and how it became so big that the end it didn't pass. But sadly, that doesn't happen for all of us. You know, that doesn't happen that like, oh, okay, exactly. we're, we're, we're not we're going to stop the, the deportation. Oh, we're going to stop the incarceration. You know, like, that doesn't happen to other groups. Exactly. That doesn't. Well, I, I guess for me, I was just going to say also that. You know, it, it mm-hmm. this started in March, right? And we're in August. And the fact that 40 different policy changes have already gone through mm-hmm. is really scary. And I've also was reading that when it comes to global health crises and, and things of that nature, when that happens, a lot of um, nations, they hold on to that. And then they start putting forth different immigration policies because it's just easier to put, put them forth that way, you know? Because on paper, it's like, yeah, we're trying to prevent um, a, a pandemic and we're trying to prevent, well, not try to pre- prevent a pandemic because it's already here, but trying to prevent yeah. the spread <laughs> the spread of a virus. But in reality, it's kind of like, okay, you're preventing people that are, are fleeing persecution from coming into the country because you're afraid of a virus, but you're still allowing exactly. essential travel for your businesses. So where does that, you know, so it doesn't exactly. make sense. And it's it, just like so, Susie said, like mm-hmm. I, I was reading how the United States was actually the one who helped spread the virus throughout, you know, the rest of the American continent because of the rotation. So it's yeah. like, you know, OK, you're yeah. following all this just because you're like, like you said, you know, you want to stop the, the spread or, you know, want to contain it, want, don't want the cases to go up. But like at the end, what, like you still have many other counties, like people that don't actually follow the rules that you have to do open, I don't know, restaurant, whatever you want to say, like all, all the things that we shouldn't be doing at this time because we have high levels of cases. And then, well, you're putting forward policies towards immigration that actually is affecting uh, not only people who are already in the um, in ICE detention centers, but who are people like in their way to like migrating or in those countries who are like now they have even higher level of poverty, higher level of violence, higher later, uh, levels of you know abuse. So and then it's, it's exactly. And then, no sirve para nada, la verdad. Yeah, no, but it, that's exactly what it is. You know, it, it's just an excuse to put forth harder immigration policy. Because at the end of the day, the, in this um, political climate that we're in, it, it kind of the foundation was xenophobic rhetoric, you know, so it's like, it, it, I'm not surprised that this is happening. But the the logic behind it, or at least the explanations behind it is just so problematic. And it's just kind of I don't know. It's just very scary to see because you we already see how it's affecting our, mm-hmm. our home countries and the people that are just genuinely trying to find a better life and trying to flee violence and everything else because they really don't have a home Sorry. back where they work, you know? So it's very scary. They're displaced in their own countries now. So it's, and because when they go back to this, when they go back to their countries after they get deported, a lot of people don't want to interact with migrants because they're already assuming that mm-hmm. they have COVID-19. So then they're getting isolated from their own communities, which means, again, lack of resources, lack of any type of protection. So it, it just goes back to them wanting to flee again, which is 
almost impossible sometimes and it, it becomes even exactly. more dangerous mm-hmm. yeah that actually happened in guatemala where like in towns like they would even like try to kill people for like to prevent them from coming back to their exactly because they knew they were just exactly supported. and that's so scary it's beyond i can't even have that yeah terrifying yeah, yeah. So one thing that you mentioned, Gabby, that I think is important, especially in light of um, the conversations conversations happening and the disappearances of the four, five Garinagu men, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's relevant to that, is that you said that your thesis um, was about land grabbing in mm-hmm. Honduras, mm-hmm. which if you could tell us a little bit more about yeah. that. So it was um just to clarify because I didn't I didn't mention this before but it was a proposal for my thesis and um yeah no oh, that's okay. okay I I didn't um specify it before but it it was a proposal that I had put forth and um I did a, a big research paper on land grab in Honduras and um just to clarify as well Honduras especially in also other parts of Central America is pro- is one of the most dangerous places to be environmental mm-hmm. activists, right? So that mm-hmm. is something that yeah. we should put into mind. And the majority of people that are environmental activists are part of indigenous and Afro-indigenous communities. And a lot of them mm-hmm. oftentimes, or all the time, I should say, face a, a greater level of persecution or and hence the reason why we're talking about these um land um defense uh, defenders that got um that are currently missing um so basically just to kind of put a definition of what land grab is um land grab is a human rights violation considered the action of illegally occupying land and ignoring the processes of legitimate land rights so um, the Garifuna community, they have access to their ancestral lands. And unfortunately, um, the Honduran government and large corporations, both domestically and internationally, have been exploiting these lands for tourism, for produce, for um, trafficking, for biofuels, the like. And um, because mm-hmm. of these chain of effects, it really affects the people that live there which is being the Garifuna communities as well as other indigenous communities. And um, honestly, land grab has been something present for the majority of Honduran history. Um, You know, when you're thinking back at colonialism or even like the independence of Central America in 1821, um, land grab was still apparent. You know, that was Mm -hmm. still something that was happening because there was no delegation once there was independence of these countries because all they knew was colonialism, Mm -hmm. right? So just to even put that forth, this is something that isn't like, this Mm -hmm. is something new. It's just gaining more traction, which is so important. And I'm glad it's just unfortunate that the reason why it's gaining traction is because of the fact that there are people missing and they have been missing for a very long time now, you know? So, um, so one of the things, and I also want to highlight too, you know, that me, in, in academia, the reason why I did this is because I saw that there was a lack of of conversations that have to do with the, the Garifuna community and as well as land grab in Central America in my classes. 
So that's why I decided to do it. But me, myself, as a white Latina mm-hmm. and also someone that is born and raised in the United States, I want to just acknowledge my privilege and acknowledge the fact that I don't want to speak for the Garifuna community because it mm-hmm. just isn't my place. It's just the fact that I wanted to show that there is a big issue in Honduras that is constantly mm-hmm. going on. And I think one of the biggest things, too, in terms of land grab is that when you're thinking of tourism in Honduras, that's one mm-hmm. of the biggest things that was deemed as a a good, um, uh, how do I say, a good thing to have for the country for them to mm-hmm. get more money. And it was a good, a good business mm-hmm. deal for the country. And this was also heightened in 2009 mm-hmm. after the coup. And you started to see that because of tourism, because of all the money that was being invested in large corporations for tourism. So there was a lot of displacement and a lot of um, targeting to the Garifuna community, especially within mm-hmm. the coastal areas of, of Tela and Ceiba. And um, it, it, it's something that continues on happening, especially in mm-hmm. like Barra Vieja, where they have Indura there. There, there is a lot of issues with their ancestral rights, with mm-hmm. the Garifuna ancestral rights, and the fact that they manipulated that. Because according to Honduras, yes, you can. Um, the Garifuna community have they have a right to their ancestral lands, but they also have a right to sell it. But the issue that's where the issue goes in in terms of manipulating mm-hmm. the land rights and obviously there's a lot of manipulation with the people in general because at the end of the day if you want to give up your land mm-hmm. they're going to take it anyway whether it be with them trying to put some put violence in there or or just trying to convince them monetary wise so there is a lot of issues that goes into play with it and even with the international community there have been a lot of humanitarian mm-hmm. initiatives to that are supposed to be helping the Garifuna community and protecting their rights. But they actually have been hypocritical in their strides. Um, because, for example, there are two big organizations called the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank. And they have policy that focus mm-hmm. on like group land rights. And the Garifuna have actually tempt, attempted to use the policies to back their land claims within Honduras if their land was taken. Mm-hmm. But the World Bank is also the people that provided a loan to Honduras for coastal and tor- for coastal tourism development. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of like they say they're supposed to help the Garifuna community, but they're also funding the, 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 their displacement, you know. Right. So it's Again, this is something that I was writing within my paper, and there's just such huge issues within this. And also, it's very important to look to the Garifuna activists currently that mm-hmm. are speaking on these issues. You know, like right. Mase Crisanto, I follow her, and she's great. I actually was watching her live today. They, I, I'm pretty sure they were they were in Tegucigalpa, and they were, again, protesting and trying to seek information on where these people are and um you know she's one of the main people i've been following especially because she's just so helpful in understanding this and you know i hope she's listening to this like shout out to you you're great and (laughs) you know and i just want to just emphasize that because this is something that Mm -hmm. has to go deeper you know but land grab has been happening for generations and has been killing the gaifuna community for generations and it's under the nose of the government as well as international governments as well 
So, or international, sorry, right. international organization. So it's something that isn't mm. a surprise to anyone. It's just now with social media and everything coming into light and Black Lives Matter, it is something that is finally gaining the attention that it needs. And I just hope, yeah. I hope that it just isn't something that is a conversation that we will have. And then it just gets swept under the rug, especially it being in Honduras and the way that environmental activists mm-hmm. are treated. But land grab, if you if you go on Google and like look up land grab Honduras, you'll see so many different articles that talk about how their rights mm-hmm. have been manipulated for generations. And it's very scary. Right. And, you know, still to this day, it's happening. You know, people are still wanting to build new um, new resorts and things of that manner within their land, you know, and it's, it's very scary. And it's something that has to continue on happening. And um, there's a, there's a lot of um, also Garifu, not um, academics that, that write about this. And that's where I got a lot of like my, um, my resources from. And that's also another big thing too. Garifuna um, academics should be elevated in this conversation because they've done so much to just even put it in yes. writing, you know, so it, it land grab is just so important. And I hope that the conversation continues. Definitely. Yeah, thank you so much, Gabby, for explaining that. And of course, like, I understand, like, the limitations and everything in terms of, um, you know, speaking about land grabbing and you not being from those communities, but I think, you know, it is a step towards the direction of, you know, for future people to Mm -hmm. come and first of all, learn about it. Mm -hmm. Because again, like the fact that it doesn't really have a place in academia, just putting it out there is such a fundamental step. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, now it's been kind of amazing. Um, Of course it's like the bare minimum, but like it has been, I guess, validating to see, you know, like, big bigger like you know like pan latinx or um like yeah di- or diaspora pages mm-hmm. you know featuring the issues with the Gari- mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Uh, like because i was just like oh god like again like i feel like even with the central american community mm-hmm. there's so much erasure of that community but it seems like again like apparently even ilhan omar mm-hmm. um mentioned it and like during, I don't even know, but during something mm-hmm. in the past week, which is like, okay, like yeah. mm-hmm. it's going to gain some traction. I and mean, hopefully, as you said, it's not just a conversation, but like there's finally more permanent, um, permanent like ramifications and reparations like to the Garinago community mm-hmm. that has been suffering for decades. Yep. Exactly. When the, and I mean, not just enduring government, of course, like all the other governments that they exactly. live in. Exactly. Exactly. It's just a, another issue that has continued on since colonialism that finally is at least being brought to light. But, you know, we have to mm-hmm. understand and, and understand the anti-blackness that is just so is within mm. the foundation of every single country and it's something that will continue right. happening if um we mm-hmm. just don't bring it to light for sure and also just like tying it to the bigger picture since a lot of our conversation has been about migration but like generally like mm-hmm. indigenous and like black displacement like in central america has been mm-hmm. such a big catalyst for mm-hmm. migration you know because it's not just the garinago who has been suffering it's mm-hmm. other indigenous communities um that have been you know their lands have been stolen people have been like again Mm -hmm. land and water defenders have been killed um in 
and it's like very openly known that like the government basically sponsored yeah. it or exactly. whatever um so yeah thank you gabby i don't know if you want to say something else or we need to talk about something else before we start um, no i'm honestly just so happy that we were able to have this conversation and that we can continue mm-hmm. on having these conversations because you two are providing this platform for so many people to talk about what's important to them and what's important to their communities. And I just have to thank y'all for that because this is something I, I literally would have never thought we would have. And it's just so great that this is all coming. This is all becoming a bigger thing. And it's just, it's just so heartwarming. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, Gabby. And thank you for sharing your knowledge that, Again, me and Alam have our own areas of, like, we all have our areas of expertise, but, like, the hope is that, you know, we can give a platform, because how else, like, I feel like a podcast is really easy to, you know, kind of explain these things a little bit, you know, better versus, you know, writing a whole paper or, like, having people read a whole paper or an article. Um, so, again, like, it does take effort from you. So thank you for being able to share that knowledge. Don't forget to check out our website at centralamericanvoices.com where you can subscribe to our mailing list. Also follow us on Instagram at Sentown Voices Podcast and on Twitter at Sentown Voices Pod for more updates. And don't forget to come back next week to hear our newest episode. Bye.